0: Hi and welcome to the EVJ podcast. Throughout December we're releasing four podcasts based on the news hour sessions given at this year's Beaver Congress. A review of the current literature in four different disciplines including medicine, reproduction, lameness and surgery will be released over the coming month. In this episode Maddie Campbell presents the recent literature on equine reproduction. Okay, so we're going to move on to reproduction, um, and that's going to be presented by Maddie Campbell. Thank you, Tim. Well, uh, this is a particularly nice year in in which to be asked to review equine reproduction, because 2018 was also the year uh, in which we had the 12th International Symposium on Equine Reproduction, which this year happened to be held uh, here in England, in Cambridge. For those of you who've never attended, it's a Uh, entirely research-based conference. It happens once every four years, so it provides a a really lovely opportunity for those working worldwide in equine reproduction to kind of come together, present what they've been working on for the preceding four years, and then discuss it and and try and figure out how the story uh, is building, really. So I've chosen uh, for my section of this afternoon's um, talks to relay to you some of the papers which I thought would probably be of most interest uh, to practitioners which arose from this conference. Um, You can find them online because I'm obviously going to have to go at a fair gallop through them uh, via this link here. And they are available uh, open access for a few more days if you're interested to look up some more of the detail uh, than I have time to present. And I'd like to acknowledge at the start my gratitude uh, to the authors of these papers, many of whom, or all of whom, I have been kind enough to share images with me and also some slides so that I can relay their work to you today. So the first paper um, comes from Colorado State. It's an interesting paper. They looked at the question, um, which perhaps isn't an immediately obvious one, of whether or not you could thaw semen which had been frozen, um, re-extend it, and then keep it chilled for 24 hours and use it to inseminate the mare 24 hours or so later. And the reason for this, you will already have realized, is that, of course, frozen semen generally doesn't last very well once it's thawed. And so that means it's difficult to use in the sense that um, it takes some expertise, it takes some more equipment than just a chilled or fresh semen insemination. And it also requires, most importantly, very intensive mare management. And what that means is that some mare owners simply don't want to pay for that intensive management. And some busy practitioners really just don't want the faff of having to examine the mare every six to eight hours. So it limits the market for the use of frozen semen, effectively. Um, And what the Colorado group were looking at was really trying to work out whether there's a way in which uh, they could make this frozen semen easier for people to use in practice. So whether they could do uh, the thawing part, whether they could process the semen and send it out um, in a way which would enable practitioners to use it as if they were using chilled semen. So the uh, study really had two parts. First of all, it aimed to evaluate the longevity of frozen stallion semen once it's been thawed, extended, kept chilled for 24 to 48 hours. And then following on from that, they aimed to evaluate the fertility of semen which had been treated in that way. So they used ejaculates from quarter-horse stallions, they had a control group uh, in which the semen was simply collected, extended and kept cooled using a commercial chiller like an equitainer. Um, And then they had groups in which the semen from the same stallions was collected, frozen and then thawed using one of three protocols. And I'm not going to get bogged down in the detail of those protocols now but you can read them. Uh, in the paper, but essentially, whichever way it had been thawed, it was then diluted using one of these commercially available uh, semen extenders uh, and then kept chilled at 5 to 8 degrees, which is the temperature it would normally be at if it was in a uh, semen shipper, which was being used to send chilled semen overnight, for example. And then, after 24 hours, either the semen samples were evaluated using computer-assisted sperm analysis at 24 hours and 48 hours after it had been thawed and extended and cooled. Um, Or, in a second study, mares were inseminated using that semen um, 24 hours after it had initially been processed. And for the second study, they had eight reproductively normal mares. Uh, Ovulation was induced as it would be in a normal chilled semen program, uh, and they did the same mares twice across two cycles. So I haven't got time to go through all of the results. I'm just going to pull out um, some of them for you. If you look at this um, column here on the left-hand side, which is highlighted in red, we're looking at the progressive motility after 24 hours uh, for the various samples. And what you can see is that the progressive motility for the cooled-only semen is about what we'd expect for a good stallion, around about uh, the 80% mark. And then you can see that the three groups um, in which the semen had been f- frozen, thawed, re-extended, and then kept cooled, um, all showed, actually, a surprisingly good progressive motility. All of them were above the 30% mark, which we would normally have as a kind of cut-off point for what's commercially acceptable uh, post-thaw for frozen semen. And, in fact, this first group, Group 1, had what seemed to me surprisingly high progressive motility of around about 50%. So, of course, they used that protocol, then, uh, to go on and and look at the effects in terms of fertility. Um, and in this trial, they found that in the first cycle, 50% of the mares were pregnant, and in the second cycle, 63% of them have, became pregnant when they were inseminated with the semen, which had been frozen, thawed, uh, re-extended, and kept chilled for 24 hours, giving them an overall pregnancy rate of about 56%. So what does all of that tell us in, in practical terms? Well, it seems that frozen saline sperm can indeed be treated in that way and still maintain adequate motility for 24 to 48 hours. Um, in this study, at least, it also, when it was used in mares 24 hours later, yielded a reasonable overall pregnancy rate. Uh, and the authors suggested that that can be useful, uh, for example, if a stallion's away competing and not available by chilled semen, it may make it possible for practitioners to use frozen semen when they wouldn't normally do so. The thing that interested me about this paper as well was whether, in fact, what it teaches us um, might have an application for problem mares. So you'll know that in uh, those problem mares, which are very prone to post-breeding endometritis, using frozen semen is difficult because it doesn't last very long, which means we have to inseminate them very close to ovulation, which means we don't have much time uh, before progesterone goes up to try and treat them and clean up endometritis. And and what I wonder is if what this study is really telling us is that, in fact, the semen lasts better if you thaw it and re-extend it and chill it and use it than it does if you simply thaw it and use it. Could we use it that way in order to be able to inseminate difficult males earlier in relation to ovulation than we're currently able to do? Because if we could, that would buy us more time in which to clean them up when they have the reaction to the insemination. The second paper I wanted uh, to review for you is a paper from Dr. Ferrosola's group in Spain. And this was looking at the use of power mode Doppler ultrasonography as a predictive tool of very early pregnancy in the mare. The background to this paper is, as you all know, we routinely do our first pregnancy diagnosis scans about 14 or 15 uh, days. And really, even with good ultrasound scanners, uh, we can't reliably detect an embryo in the mare's uterus at less than 10 or 11 days. So what that means is because we know that the incidence of early embryonic death in mares is is relatively high, there are no doubt some mares uh, which are losing the embryo before we are even capable of seeing it with the ultrasound machine. But at the moment, we can't distinguish between those which have suffered that very early loss of pregnancy and those which simply haven't conceived to begin with. And equally, when we're doing embryo transfers, um, we're routinely flushing at about seven or eight days post-ovulation. And again, for the same reasons, uh, we're doing that blind. We don't know whether there's an embryo in there um, because we can't see it with the ultrasound. And of course, what that means is that some of the time uh, we're doing a flush when there's no embryo there and we're wasting time and money. So the aim of this study was really to determine whether power Doppler ultrasonography uh, is able to detect differences in the uterine blood flow Uh, seven to eight days post-ovulation which would enable us to distinguish between pregnant and non-pregnant mares. So the study involved uh, 40 mares. They were divided into two groups. They were all uh, bred routinely. Uh, And then seven days post-ovulation, half of them were imaged using the technique I'm about to describe to you, and the other half were imaged the next day on day eight post-ovulation. Embryo recovery was then performed, um, and of course that tells you whether or not the mare is pregnant, so it enables you to match the pregnancy results with the ultrasound results, uh, and then uh, the embryos were transferred. So, uh, the technique was done by using an ultrasound probe, which was just placed transversely in the middle of each uterine horn, taking two images uh, from that position, and then evaluated using what are described as spot meter techniques, so, in other words, measuring the intensity of color, uh, and region area techniques, in other words, measuring the area of the uterus that showed color, Um, and they used power flow mode to display the signals for blood flow in the endometrium, the myometrium, and the perimetrium, Uh, and they measured the degree of uterine vascular perfusion using software which quantifies the pixels. What did they find? Well, if you look at the left-hand graph here, you can see that in terms of the area of the uterus signaling for uh, vascular vascular perfusion, there was a significant difference between the mares which were pregnant and the mares which weren't, although um, there was no difference between the mares which were carrying one embryo and those which were carrying two. And similarly, when we look at the intensity of of vascular perfusion on the right-hand side, uh, again, it's greater in pregnant mares than it is in non-pregnant mares, but no difference, again, between the mares with one and two embryos. So what that seems to imply uh, is that the power mode Doppler ultrasonography is indeed an effective method for uh, early diagnosis of pregnancy in mares, um, and it's possibly something that those of us who are doing a lot of embryo transfer, or even a bit of embryo transfer, um, should familiarise ourselves with. The next paper I wanted to go on to is one of those papers which I always enjoy because it's one of those papers in which it's thrown up a kind of clinically interesting result which wasn't exactly what the authors were looking for uh, to start with. So, this uh, paper from Dr. Laurentis and, and group in Brazil was looking at the, whether or not therapeutic doses of phenylbutazone affect ovulation processes in mares. The background to this, of course, is, is that we know that the process of ovulation, and particularly of failure of ovulations, is still not very well understood in the mare. Um, we know that it causes a problem, anovulation, either anovulatory hemorrhagic follicles or the formation of luteinized, unruptured follicles, Uh, Occurs in about 5% of cycles, and that is difficult from a management point of view. We also know that ovulation is essentially an inflammatory process, it involves synthesis of inflammatory cytokines and prostaglandins and cortisol in the ovulatory follicle. And so, therefore, it follows, logically, that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs uh, might interfere with normal ovulation. And indeed, one previous study with intravenous high doses of flenoxylene which was given in the periovulatory period, uh, had shown that it blocked ovulation and induced luteinized unruptured follicle formation. And those of us who work like me with older sports horse bruise mares um, are well aware that quite often they're being treated at least intermittently with some phenylbutazone for kind of long-standing orthopaedic problems. We know already from previous work uh, that that can cause problems with uterine contractions. And the question really here was could it also uh, cause problems by interfering with the normal ovulatory processes? So the aim of the study was to determine if treatment with different therapeutic doses of phenylbutazone affected ovulation processes. They basically had four treatment groups, so all of the mares uh, were followed through cerus, and at the stage at which uh, they had good uterine edema, a grade of 2 to 3, and a uh, follicle of at least 35 uh, millimetres. As we would in practice, they were treated uh, with deserenin as an ovulation induction agent. The control group had nothing else in terms of treatment. Uh, the first phenylbutazone treatment group was then simultaneously, at the time they received the ovulation induction agent, also given uh, a one off treatment with 4.4 milligrams per kilogram of phenylbutazone. Um, the second group had both of those treatments and additionally another dose of phenylbutazone uh, 24 hours later. And then the third group um, was treated in the two days preceding the treatment with the with phenylbutazone and then treated at the time of the Deslorelland administration and every 24 hours later uh, until they ovulated with phenylbutazone, up to a maximum of five treatments. What did they find? Well, um, in a way, they didn't find what they were looking for because there was no difference uh, in the formation of these luteinized, unrupted follicles between the groups. In fact, they only recorded one, which happened to be in the one-treatment phenylbutazone group. Um, nor was there any difference in twin ovulation rates between the groups. Um, but there was a significant difference in the time to ovulation between the control group and the phenylbutazone-treated groups. So if you look at the graph uh, here, you can see the control group in black and the time to ovulation after they've been treated, the deslorelin is about what we'd expect. It's about 40 hours or so after treatment. Whereas in the f- all of the phenylbutazone-treated groups, although there's not much difference between them, that effect was delayed, so they took longer uh, to ovulate. So the authors commented um, that the implication of this um, is that since a delay of about 15 hours seems to be occurring in these mares which have received phenylbutazone, um, the use of phenylbutazone in fixed-time insemination programmes could be problematic, because effectively what it means, of course, is you're likely to be inseminating the mare too early in relation to ovulation. Um, the thing that, that interests me, in a way, about this paper is um, if this effect is indeed correct, could we actually be making use of it? So when we find ourselves in the position when the semen's got lost in the post, or if we find ourselves in the position where we've got a limited number of recipient mares and the recipient mare is getting ahead of the donor mare for an embryo transfer, so and we effectively need to kind of slow her down and delay when she's going to ovulate, could we be using phenylbutasome as a treatment to deliberately delay ovulation? Now, um, that's just an idea, and I have to add a massive caveat to it, which is that this study um, didn't look at all at pregnancy rates, so what I'm unclear about at the moment is whether when those oocytes are eventually released 15 hours later than we expect them to be there of normal facility or whether that has also been affected by the delay. Finally, I just uh, wanted to present to you one of those papers that every now and then you kind of hear a bit of research or, or read it, and it just makes you think, wow. And, and this, for me, is, is one of those papers um, from Dr Gallagher and her co-workers at the University of Adelaide uh, Veterinary School. And it's looking at using a technique called um, real-time in vivo microscopic uh, confocal laser endomicroscopy uh, in the mare's uterus. So, as you all. No, normally when we're doing uh, uterine biopsies in mares, although we can do them endoscopically, typically we're doing them blind using endometrial biopsy forceps um, just by palpating the forceps per rectum. Um, We typically take it from the base of each uterine horn um, because we can't see what we're doing. They're essentially non-targeted when we're only sampling a small part of the endometrium. Um, And of course it is quite an invasive technique, although having said that, it seems to be generally quite well tolerated by the mares. So this uh, group, Dr Gallagher and her co-workers looked at uh, whether a technique which is already being used in human medicine Uh, for imaging, particularly in gastrointestinal tract, um, could be adapted to use within the mayor's uterus. And and this is this technique of confocal fluorescent microscopy. Now, um, I'm no physicist, and thankfully, in a way, I'm short of time, so I'm not going to try to explain it to you in in great detail, and it is all in the paper. Um, But I will try to impart the gist of it, which is um, that the endoscope has at the tip of it uh, this tiny microscope. Um, So you can do effectively simultaneous hysteroscopy and microscopic imaging. And, and what you end up with is a kind of virtual uh, biopsy of the endometrium. So I'll show you um, what I mean. You've got this tiny microscope in the, in the tip of the endoscope, um, and it has this confocal uh, beam. So that the point at which they... Converge is the depth at which you take the image, essentially. So you can take it at varying images through uh, varying levels through the endometrium. The mares are pre treated uh, with fluorescein, and then the microscope has a particular type of blue light in it, and the combination of those two uh, enables the imaging to work. So the aims of this study were to assess the technical feasibility of adapting this CLE technique uh, for evaluation of the endometrium in the mare. Um, and then to try and determine standard doses of the fluorescein sodium, uh, which would achieve optimal cellular imaging. The fluorescein is is taken up very quickly into the tissues following intravenous administration, Um, and then to start to create a kind of library of images uh, using this technique. So they had 44 mares um, in which they tried the technique. All of them were um, had a very thorough reproductive examination undertaken on them before the technique, including a conventional biopsy. Um, and the authors reported that generally it was very well tolerated by the mares, although it did involve a lot of mopping up of uh, fluorescein urine. These are some of the images which Dr Gallagher has been kind enough to share, and I think you'll agree with me, I, I find them truly remarkable and, and wonderful. So, on the top, on the left, you can see an image of the epithelium, of the endometrium. Remember, these are all being taken in real time and can be taken at a, an area which, with the um, hysteroscopic image, looks perhaps grossly abnormal, and then you can kind of hover the microscope over it and, and get this image to see what's actually going on uh, in the layers of, of the endometrium. So, at the top, we have a, a view of the epithelium, showing all the epithelium cells. Uh, and then, on the bottom left, Uh, we've got the um, endometrial glands, so you can see the lumen of the glands, which is obviously dark, the cells aligning uh, the lumen of those glands, and then the cells around the endometrial glands, which of course is where, when we're looking at a conventional histological side of an endometrial biopsy, we'd expect to pick up problems with fibrosis and so on. Um, And then on the right-hand side, you can see in the the blue circle, so inside, where the star is, is, is an endometrial gland, um, and inside the blue circle, we've got exocytosing inflammatory cells. And then, I think really remarkably, where the arrow is, you can see a blood cell running through uh, the endometrium and, and a blood vessel and cells are within it. So the authors reported that the technique did seem to work. Um, in terms of the luminal epithelium, they could assess the epithelial height, the integrity, whether it was ulcerated. Uh, they could detect these exocytosed inflammatory cells we've just seen. Um, in terms of the endometrial glands, they can assess the distribution, the density, the shape, uh, whether they're dilated or impassated. Um, and then in the superficial stroma, they can see the vessels, and they can see interstitial inflammatory cells and periglandular fibrosis. So really, they can see everything that pathologists can see when they're looking at a conventional histological slide um, of an endometrial biopsy. Uh, but of course, it's being obtained in a way which is minimally invasive just the hysteroscope, uh, and and can be very targeted to discrete abnormal areas uh, of the uterus. The limitations, the authors reported, were that um, the image quality varied quite a lot between mares, and and that, they felt, was related to how much edema particular mares happen to put up when they're in oestrus. But overall, they felt it was a useful uh, technique, and and certainly I'm going to be interested to see uh, whether it gets incorporated into our practice over the next few years. So that's the end of my gallop through equimamory reproduction, and and this is a reminder of where you can find the papers. Thank you. you, Brilliant. Thank you very much.